If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inks, the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnBest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I'm excited for you to meet Vikram Kapoor, co-founder and CTO at Lacework. Vikram co-founded the company in 2015 and leads Lacework's strategic technology and architecture roadmap. In 2021, Lacework raised $1.3 billion in a Series D at an $8.3 billion valuation, the largest funding round for any cybersecurity company ever. Prior to Lacework, Vikram led Bromium's engineering team, managed the data storage engine group at Oracle, and was lead architect for Exa Data Technologies. Vikram was also development manager for the protocols group at Oracle, where he designed components of the NFS v4 server. Vikram also held senior engineering roles at Pillar Data Systems and Balasearch, and is a prolific inventor who holds several patents. And with that, let's welcome Vikram to talk about the future of cybersecurity. Welcome, Vikram. I'm so happy to have you on today. Let's go back to the early days in 2015. What's Lacework in your own words? What does business do? How did you get started? Well, thanks a lot for Alexa to be inviting me here, and really appreciate and uh, glad to be here. Uh, just talking about Lacework back in 2015, like when we started, uh, we were really trying to figure out how you know sec- how to solve a security problem, you know, like which everybody kind of grapples with as they scale up, which is how do I understand my environment? How do I figure out you know if there is some intruder in there or not? Like how do I uh, understand just what people are doing in my environment. So we kind of started that as a you know as a core thesis that as people scale up their environments, they're going to require like you know automated tools to figure out how things work. And 2015 cloud was already like you know AWS is already like nine years old and you know, Hadoop and columnar storage and a lot of data structures have already basically been changed. And that's really what we kind of looked at as like you know okay security is a data problem and if we figure out the right data sets, we figure out how to process them right. Uh, we figure out how to do it at cost. Uh, we can solve a really, really big problem for our customers, and you know that's what we started doing. And over time, it kind of evolved into a comprehensive data security platform, where today we do everything that a customer needs to secure their cloud environments. It goes all the way from vulnerability management and you know securing their code to running it in the in, in the production environment, uh, managing configurations uh, like end to end as a security platform for for all three major cloud providers, basically. Vikram, one of the things I was hoping you could tell us is walk us through a customer experience today. So let's say I become a customer today. What is Lacework doing for me? How does it make my like life easier? And what does that onboarding look like? It's actually a really great question and something that we focus very early on as like a differentiator. Um, so our experience for people is really when they, you know, let's say you buy the product and you're like, oh, I'm going to install it today. Then within an hour, we can actually install it on your entire cloud footprint. So imagine you have 10,000 VMs or 50,000 VMs. You can actually install the product in an hour across the board. And within two hours, you start getting like automated, not alerts, but automated events. And those events are basically anomalies that you've detected in your environment in the last two hours. 
And as we learn more about your environment, like every hour, then within a couple of days, you know, events kind of stabilize. And then we are able to find, you know, these nuggets, which are really, really anomalies, which you would never as a human be able to find at that scale. And so the experience for onboarding for people is like really convenient and fully automated. And where you don't have to write any rules, you don't have to go sit down and describe your environment to us or say, well, I run it this way. Like, you don't need to tell us. You know, we will get installed, we will collect the data, and the data will tell us, you know, what you actually do or have been doing for the last, you know, week, 30 days, 60 days. And that gives us enough information to baseline behaviors. And from there, be able to create, like, you know, unique, uh, you know, differentiated events, which, you know, almost nobody else in the, in the, in the industry can do it today. Vikram, I love this quote that you have which I think is brilliant. You said data is the new oil and you've approached security as a data problem. Tell us what you mean by that quote, data is the new oil. You know, if you look at the industries, you know, in the, the world we live in today, like almost everything eventually is powered by oil, right? Like, uh, or used to be now it's solar a lot and wind a lot, but basically everything used to be powered by oil. And similar to that, right? Like the world we are living today in the tech world, you know, there's a lot of metrics that you can collect. There's a lot of right information that gives you the right insight. But the trick is that you have to find the right data that gives you the right insight. And a lot of the security industry before we started Lacework was really based on logs, right? And logs were written for debugging by developers. They were not really written for security in mind. And we approach the problem as, look, if we collect the right information at the right place, uh, which helps us figure out some insight, uh, then we can solve the problem at scale and be able to you know, do it in a way that is like cost effective and you know works help for customers. Uh, and that's what I mean. You know, like it's a new oil where everything we do today now is eventually basically getting an insight from the data that you've collected and metrics that you have, and uh, and that's a trend that's not stopping anytime soon. But we kind of took it as a very initial thesis on security can be solved, uh, like security problems can be solved by the right data sets and processing the right way. And that's where most of our IP is today. Can you talk a little bit about how you identified how big this market was back in 2015? How did you wrap your head around the opportunity that you guys were running after? So that actually goes back like last 20 years of me uh, working in the backend systems and data store. I mean, I worked at Oracle for a long time and basically kind of seeing how technology stacks, you know, kind of grew, right? I used to work in a companies which built storage and we used to talk about like, you know, IOPS and 100 IOPS was big for a disk and you had a JBoard or an entire stack and, you know, you know, you were very happy when you had like 10,000 IOPS. Then 2008, like 2006, 2007, like SSD started happening and a million IOPS were like right at your fingertips. The way the software industry has evolved last 20 years, it's basically been like, you know, a direction where the scale has just become like bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's where, you know, in 2015, we realized that, you know, how people were doing security on the server side, which was almost always like networking based. It was based on IPs, based on ports. And the entire tech stack was changing. Like it was all ephemeral, you know, workloads with Mesos, Marathon, Kubernetes, cloud, obviously. And it was very clear that, you know, anything people are doing on security today is going to get disrupted and it's not going to survive. And that's how we kind of realized the market is huge because, you know, everybody who's, you know, running any app today would eventually go to a cloud. And if they eventually go to the cloud, the threat vectors are entirely different. You know, how you can do security is entirely different. And therefore, it would require a new technology stack to actually deal with it. So that's how, you know, we kind of knew the market is big and turned out to be right. But uh, it's always a bet. You know, you never know. Uh, but, you know, it was a good bet to make at that time. How does AI change what you're building at Lacework? I think the continuation of the same data is, is a new oil theme where now we are able to process like, you know, billions and billions of documents across the globe and be able to create a model that can actually predict language pretty well, right? And be able to understand language very well. 
I think it's the same theme where I think AI is going to, is very big disruption. And the way I look at it, like any prediction I make is likely to be wrong because it's just going to be very surprising. Uh, so there are a few things we are kind of doing to kind of make sure we are aligned with that disruption in the future. One, there's a lot of advantage in using it as a tool for us to improve our productivity and our customers' uh, experience. So like, you know, being able to code faster, be able to debug faster, be able to uh, have NLP as a way to kind of interact with the system. Like, so that's actually all the building side of it where, you know, AI is very disruptive and it kind of incrementally improves things as we go. And the other thing that we as a security company are carefully watching is really about how the attackers start using it for themselves in some other way, right? And that's where I think it's still maturing. I mean, I think there are a lot of possibilities where it can go, uh, but where exactly it goes is still not there. I mean, it's, it's still, the thesis is still evolving. It's, it's disruptive for sure, and it's big. And the interesting part is like how it gets eventually uh, get used on both sides of the uh, security spectrum where, you know, we can use it to actually defend better, uh, but also attackers are going to use it to attack even more efficiently. And we have to react to that too. Tell us a little bit more about your predictions. Give us a sense of what else you see coming that maybe the rest of us haven't thought about. I think the few things that are already trends, which are well-established, which I don't think are going to reverse themselves, which is where my understanding is it's going to go, like which I think it's going to go is like, the cloud is not slowing down anytime soon, right? So the way I can do AI, for example, in the cloud is another big you know, disruption and another big compute source that I need to buy and run. And therefore, you know, the footprint on the cloud is just going to keep going up. And secondly, the DevOps are becoming like more and more efficient like every month, right? Like it's really an exponential series. I remember, you know, when I started engineering, like, you know, coding and deploying something was like a six-month project just to get disks and machines to do something. And today with AI, like, I can actually literally write an app in like in an afternoon and deploy it in like a few seconds. So your developer velocity is really fast and your cloud footprint is really big and scaling up. And then you have disruptive technologies like, you know, Gen AI, which is going to change things up. So fundamentally, a few years from now, I see like security basically for most of the people, like it's even becoming harder to kind of manage it manually. You basically need tools which can kind of look at it comprehensively as one platform, look at every small dimension of how things are changing. So for example, if you know most of my code got written by Gen AI, and same is for other thousand developers, then well, guess what? The bugs are also gonna be very similar. So fundamentally at some level, like you know, the Gen AI and the whole trend of like going to the cloud and scale means that for most people who are not looking at it as an automated problem is a dead end. Like you have to think of it as some tool that looks at the whole big picture, looks at all the data comprehensively, and then finds out something that I need to look about and worry about today. Otherwise, as a human, I just can't just can't scale it. Like it doesn't matter how many people I have in my team, I just can't scale it. Vikram, one of the things which happened in 2021, the company's revenue literally grew by 300% and you were already a big company. So what have you learned about go-to-market since you started and any specific lessons about upshifting in a market to larger enterprise customers? So as you got even bigger, you know, meteor material companies, what lessons have you learned? A lot of lessons for me personally. Like I've been an uh, engineer most of my life. And, you know, when I started Lacework and over the last seven, eight years, like learned a lot about go-to-market. Particularly, I think one of the things which is very deep insight for us is really how since cloud is a platform and, you know, developers are free to choose, you know, which cloud to use for which particular problem and solve the problem in a particular way. I think most of the companies are looking for something which is actually a platform as a cloud security platform. You can't really solve the problem by solving like one small niche. You have to think of it like, a you know, how do I solve the entire AWS security, right? Or GCP and Azure together, right? So that's one big insight. And then, you know, and then 
overall, as we kind of look at our customers, they're trying to figure out how to keep pace with DevOps, how to, as they evolve and, uh, you know, deploy new technology, how do I secure it? How do I manage my risk? You know, how do I reduce it? How do I do it cost efficiently? Uh, but as you go from, you know, mid-market to enterprise, right, which is the motion we are in right now, you kind of start realizing how stuff that is kind of at small scale doesn't really matter, like RBAC, for example, or how do I run my different BUs, like 10 BUs together with the same policies. Like a lot of the scale on the human side starts showing up. Like, you know, companies which are like a thousand people company and a 10,000 people companies, they generally have different processes. They have different ways how authorization happens, how, you know, procurement happens, how uniform their stack is. And all of that starts flowing into your product and you have to start worrying about it. So at some point, like, you know, a lot of the features we are doing now are really about how do you scale the product up from like two people or teams to like 20 people teams to 200 people teams and how, you know, the division of, you know, labor happens and, you know, different people are responsible for different things and they don't have confidence uh, privileges to look at everything else. So how do you kind of do that properly? How do you scale things up, right? Like for one of my favorite quotes of at one point last, you know, five, five years ago was really a company which was, uh, I don't even know how many AWS accounts I have or because everybody is allowed to take, take a credit card and create one. So how do I go figure that out itself, right? Like, so in general, like lack of visibility at scale with people, that's where, you know, a lot of the enterprises eventually end up, you know, wanting and needing to operate something, you know, successfully. Vikram, what worries you about your category? How do you think about the things that are either things you're extremely focused on for the next few years to play offense against? What are the risks that you're thinking about these days? The biggest risks, the way I look at it is really our own execution, right? Like eventually uh, we are in a really big market, you know, the product is really differentiated and uh, we have a very strong team. Uh, but overall, you know, everybody, you're, you're making predictions about the future at any given time. You're trying to figure out what the customers want. So just basically executing that well, like just kind of aligning ourselves to a goal and making sure we keep the customer focused and, you know, and then just do what they need to get done, right? Is really the core thesis for how we operate. And, and the most of the risks are really around not doing that well, right? Like you end up at some point thinking, you know, let's say like right now, for example, I think Gen AI is big, but who knows, like maybe tomorrow something changes and it's not, right? And then how do you react to that? So at some level, like, you know, uh, we, I mean, in my head, I'm always like, there's a probability with everything that you are thinking of and eventually they all feed into each other and ends up with a big probability. And then at any given time, you if it doesn't, you're, what you're thinking doesn't turn out to be right, you have to shuffle and readjust yourself for the new reality, right? So I, you know, we have basically been very good at it. Like we don't really shy away from it. And if the world changes, we change with it. But that's basically the biggest risk. Like you, you know, kind of you believe in something and, and that happens to be wrong and then, you know, you don't change. So it's always like, you know, kind of iterative process of figuring out what we need to do. And, you know, so nothing really worries me other than just executing that well. And if you do it well, I think we get to be able to solve customer problems and create value. You know, Vikram, you're a really interesting co-founder, CTO. How have you thought about building your engineering team? Give us your quick philosophies on building an incredibly strong, talented engineering organization. The most important thing to me for a strong team is actually alignment on the goal. Like, so if, if you really believe in the company mission and, you know, and then you are really aligned on it and you're really doing the best you can to kind of meet that mission, like the teams are very productive, they're very effective. So in general, like as you hire and as you kind of uh, want to grow your teams, I think the one thing I look for is really hiring people who believe in the mission that we are on, right? Like, and, and it's fair to say 
lot of people don't believe in our mission and they believe in a different way to do things or uh, and they're also incredibly smart but we've always kind of filtered for like you know people who believe in our mission which is a security mission so we are a lot of us are actually data people like you know i grew up in oracle i did like storage a lot uh, a lot of the early team at facebook was data people even today we have a lot of people from who are ex facebook ex google and very strong security people too but the mission is to actually solve a security problem for a customer using data as a leverage to do it and that's really the alignment when you have like you know people who believe in the same strategy uh, they and the teams are really effective if everybody is kind of thinking the same Uh, alignment essentially so to me you know as we scaled up the most important thing was always to kind of make sure that anybody coming in actually believes in our mission and like what we are trying to do and if that's not aligned then it doesn't really matter how good they are or what they can do for you because they're not going to do it and we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Vikram, I want to transition a little bit to you. Go back to the beginning. You are such a truly repeat entrepreneur. It is in your DNA. If we go back to you as a child, was that obvious? So a lot of my early memories, you know, obviously when I go back in time, like it wasn't around tech because, you know, I kind of got into tech in my college, uh, but it was always about business. Like, so my, I grew up in a family, which was a trading family. Um, and every conversation I ever remember in like first 15 years of my life was all about like either cost or about like what you're selling and who you're selling it to and how you're selling it. And it was all about like basically business. So I learned a lot about there as you know as I was growing up and I knew I was going to do some business I just didn't know what and eventually when I you know kind of got into tech it was like oh this is so much better than what I was thinking of earlier uh, but yeah I mean as go back like I was always like you know kind of thinking about doing something uh, just didn't know what what it would be If we go back was there something that your parents did that you would replicate because you think it really left a, a powerful mark on you that you think has attributed to your success today. Yeah, actually there are a couple of points, you know, and again, by the way, I didn't realize it when I was younger, but you know, now that I am older, I have my own kids and I kind of see them and realize how they used to do some stuff which I'm trying to replicate now. And the basic, you know, couple of points where which I try to do that one like, you know, what I strongly believe in may or may not be the right thing that my kids believe in and my parents also like had their own world thesis and they believed in certain things, but they always let me be what I wanted to be. right so there was always a gap of like you know i'll tell you what you think you should do but you can do what you want right like and that that was kind of very useful and the second was like you know i always ask a lot of why's like even today i ask like a lot of why's for everything like you know my default answer is always like why for every question and they always actually indulge it like i was able was able to ask that why question to like a million people and understand why they're doing what they're doing and how they're doing it and was never like you know like don't ask it like you know it was always encouraged and and that is something i also encourage a lot in my kids where it's like you know if you understand from first principles how things work then you're able to extrapolate you know those solutions into a lot of different problem areas that otherwise are you know seem different but they're not actually uh, so i think just you know inculcating that first principle thinking and asking why is 
uh, was very inf- was very formative in my early years. I want to talk a little bit about you know you've been through many startups, you've worked at large corporations like Oracle. How do you feel you've evolved as a leader, and what would you say is the most important evolution you've had into being a successful founder? I think one is obviously discovering your own limitations and strengths, right? And uh, somebody advised me like long time back, like where, you know, as a leader, you always have to lead with your strengths. You don't want to be a leader which kind of goes into your limitations and then you have to kind of compensate for that. You kind of focus on your strengths and go figure out how to kind of lead with those strengths, right? Uh, so to me, for my, for me, like, you know, a lot of it goes back to like anal- analysis and first principle thinking. And, and I actually use that as, you know, as I evolved more and more into like, how do I think better about something? How do I make sure I find problems today, which, you know, would be obvious like three months from now and kind of bring them forward. And over time, I've kind of developed some principles there where, you know, you always have to go top down and then you have to go bottom up and you have to meet somewhere in the middle and that middle has to be exactly the same. So you can't really go sell something which you think would sell and then not build it or build something that you can't sell, but you have to basically do the exact same thing, which also sells and you can build it. And a lot of it came from Oracle and all these startups that I had where uh, this was missing in many startups I had. And in Oracle, I saw how world-class teams can actually do things at scale and, you know, and, and do something really, really high bar. But it also requires a lot of deep knowledge and a lot of deep you know, strength in different areas. Uh, but as a startup, you don't have that deep strength. You don't have all that, you know, you know, depth to actually do it at that level. But what's good enough? What's, you know, what's the priority? What's the 80-20 rule? Like, what can you do with what resources you have to achieve a goal that you can then sell and then repeat that cycle over and over and over again? So fundamentally to me, you know, that's how I've kind of evolved where, you know, thinking about the problem deeply and kind of figuring out as best as I can today, and I'll be wrong, I know that, and be intellectually honest, and uh, but go back to like, just run a loop. How best can you do what you can do? And then you learn and keep doing it. You always say to run towards challenges, that that's how you, by overcoming challenges, that's how you create value. Running towards challenges is a hard thing to get people comfortable doing. What do you mean by that? Run towards challenges. And how have you gotten good at running towards challenges? The way I think about the problem there is really that, you know, every challenge is a problem eventually. It's a problem to be solved. And, you know, and the way you solve it and what are the different solutions, what are the different trade-offs to it is how you kind of figure out the right solution and then you kind of do it. But the harder it is, the more IP you're going to create, more value you will create for your customers. Because, you know, a very hard problem is hard to replicate to do for by somebody else, right? And therefore you're doing some thing for them that they'll value essentially. So to me, I mean, I kind of came across this over time where I kind of saw that most of my patents I had or most of the hard problems that I'm proud of today were really hard problems when I was trying to solve them. But I didn't give up. I was just, no, I need to solve it. So I'll go solve it and I'll kind of figure it out. Sometimes I fail, like sometimes our solutions are not obvious. But at some point, like, you know, any challenge that you face, which is going to help you uh, succeed, will be something that your competitors also have to do and the customers are going to value. So as a company, like every time there is some really hard problem, I get super excited. I'm like, oh, awesome. There is, you know, value to be created here. Let's go solve this. It's, you know, solvable. And once you can figure out what's solvable and you can do the 80-20 rule, you can figure out what's actually of value and what's of not of value, you don't have to do it. You get to an answer and that becomes your IP in the next two years. What do you hold as sacred as a leader? You've been a leader many, many, many times, many startups. Give us something that you think of as sacred. 
So number one thing for me, which is like the most sacred is really clarity, right? Like clarity of, you know, thought, clarity of vision. Like, you know, if you, so if me as a leader of something is not clear about what am I trying to do? Why am I doing it? How can I succeed? How, and I'm not intellectually honest with myself and with my team, then the chances of failure are like much higher, right? At some point. So at some level, like, you know, the most sacred team is really, you know, thing is really about clarity. And clarity generally doesn't evolve like, you know, thinking with yourself, right? It evolves with thinking with customers, thinking with the teams, thinking with everybody in the team, kind of getting them on the same page, uh, listening to what they are trying to say and and maybe fix your vision of what you want to do or uh, fix where you want to go eventually as a team. But basically, you know, the more clarity you have in the goal, the more clarity you have in like what you're trying to achieve and how you're going to achieve it, what resources it takes whether you can, what you do with it after you get to the goal, like is how you kind of do well, right? And then eventually, the second thing is really after that is really, you're all in it together. Like there's really no, I win and you lose or you win and I lose. It's like we all win or we all lose. Like we're all competing with like a lot of other companies in the world and a lot of other people in the world and customers really care about solving their problems. So either they give us their revenue or they don't. And therefore for us, like, you know, getting the revenue is, is what we want to do. So we're all going to win or we're all going to lose. Uh, so eventually, I think just being clear in what you're trying to do and, you know, communicating as much as you can and and getting your thinking right. Like that to me, that's the most important part, like where you have to kind of be very brutal with yourself and be very honest with yourself to say, I'm trying to achieve something and what is achievable and how is it achievable and at what cost and be very clear as much as you can. And that leads to a lot of other things. I'm going to move to quick fire round. What is a quote you live by? What's a quote that you love? So uh, there's a quote I love and I don't live by that. It's actually the negation of that. Uh, but basically the quote I love a lot is like, you know, if you, if you, if the only thing you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And to me, the reverse of it is what I'm like asking myself every day. Like, am I, is this a solution because I have a solution to this problem or the problem requires a different solution? To me, every problem is unique and you have to have like the best solution that you can think of at that time for that problem. And so the quote that, you know, is something which I quote to myself a lot is like, looks like I have a hammer here, but it doesn't really fit the problem or the problem is different and we got to think of it differently. Vikram, there's something really special about you and the way that you really are a passionate problem solver. Like that is, I'm guessing that solving problems brings you joy. Um, and as a result, it, for you, it's almost like the journey of solving the problem is, is enjoyable. So there are two parts to it. Like one, the, that's the core passion. You're absolutely right. Like solving problems and, and looking at every problem and kind of finding the best answer. Uh, but the other thing, which also on the other extreme is that it only counts if it actually gets solved and you're able to sell it or you're able to get some revenue of it. So you, you meet your goal of some ROI somewhere. So if you kind of put that together, that becomes a startup world. Like you solve problems, but you know, solving in itself is not the end goal. The end goal is to solve something and give some value to somebody else. And that's the loop, which I really enjoy. I enjoy both sides of it, basically. What is a book that you has made an impact on your life? It can be any type of book, but what's a book that has mattered to you? So I do a lot of reading, uh, not so much of books, but mostly about like, you know, a lot of different topics that really interest me in terms of like, you know, all the way from history, geography to biology, genetics, you know, science, you know, physics, bunch of stuff. Like, but I generally kind of just read up very broadly and try to kind of understand how it works and just first principles, right? So, you know, there's not very particularly one book that I really remember, but for like just general broad reading that I even do today, like every day I'm just reading like a few hours of random stuff somewhere, trying to learn how things work. What is a pinch me moment to date at, at Lacework? What was a moment where you came home and were like, I can't believe we accomplished that 
what happened? So this is kind of burned in my brain. Like there was this meeting, you know, in 2014, like late 2014, when we uh, was I was at EI at Sutter Hill, and I was working with uh, Sampolara and Stefan Dikerhoff at that point, and Sanjay. Uh, and we were in one of the, you know, we were kind of thinking that we can do polygraphs in a certain way, and we will be able to, in theory, be able to do at cost. And we kind of done a lot of math there, but we've never seen a polygraph. Like we had never seen a behavior graph. And so I did collect some data, and we actually ran through a prototype, and we collected a polygraph. And the polygraph happened to be like really beautiful. Like you know, I, you know, really actually, I took a printout of it and I gave it to everybody, and they were like, "Look, I didn't do anything sophisticated here. All I did was this X Y Z, and it turned out to be this." And that was really a pinch me moment because we were like, "Oh, okay, this is a solved problem now. Now we just need to kind of actually build it." But we can see how if you collect this data and you process it with very simple rules, you can actually create some, you know, polygraphs and you can do it at cost, and therefore it's a loop. And now you know we can get started on the company. So that was a pinch me moment, which is kind of burned in my brain when I actually saw the first polygraph, you know, on paper. And it got generated by very simple rules. It wasn't very complicated. It was like just do this, do this, do this, and it. Just emerged out of it. Can you give us your favorite interview question to ask another person to figure out if if there's somebody you really want to be with and work with? My favorite question is actually again. This, by the way, not from first principle. I didn't think of it. Somebody told me, and and I used it a lot last you know ten years now. It's really about asking people like what they are in the last you know whenever whatever they have done. You know what is the thing that they are most proud of, and you know why, and how did they get there, right? So basically, you know, once people describe what they're really proud of. Then you know what the real passion is. Then you know whether that passion matches with what you are trying to do as your mission, uh, and then you kind of figure out a fit like much more, you know, and and faster. And sometimes people have like things that they are passionate about, proud about, but it kind of leaks information very easily. It kind of tells you exactly uh, what drives somebody, right? Because you know you're obviously at the end of the day proud of things that drive you, and therefore you can get to like that core first principle like really fast that way. Last question, Vikram. Here is what is one category of innovation or a startup or something that you've learned about in the last few months that you're really intrigued by? You know, Jenna is an obvious answer there, but actually not the only one. Like uh, there are a lot of stuff in like you know medical, which is super in- interesting and exciting. How we are kind of figuring out how aging is happening or not happening, or how do you kind of slow it down, or you know things like of that sort. And then robotics, like robotics, is amazing, amazingly getting driven. Like it's just amazing how fast that innovation is. Because again, it solves like a real problem in a real world, and you know there are really interesting problems all there. Like you know Boston Dynamics being a you know prototype example there, where like some of the robots are like you know I can just watch them every day, like all day. It's just amazing how robotics and Gen AI are kind of both progressing really fast. Vikram, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody out there, um, if you want to check out Lacework, check out lacework.com. Vikram, we're rooting for you. Congrats on your incredible success. And thank you so much for giving us a sense about the future of cybersecurity, security, AI, where the world is headed, um, and also just some of your great leadership skills. Thank you all so much. You can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. And thank you again, Vikram. Thank you. Really appreciate it. 